in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies and knights, the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Mr. Nathan Lutz. How are you doing, sir? I am doing great, Russell. It is back to full summer weather after a couple of weeks of, goodness, lots of rainfall that we've been having in Pittsburgh. Well, if you like summer, you must like it hot. And if you like it hot, then we've got somebody from deep in the heart of Texas here, Bears Rebecca Fonte. How you doing, Bears? I'm doing good. Good to see you again, Russell. Good to see you. Those who don't remember, this is Bears from back on the Demolition Man episode and the Forbidden Planet episode. So staying with that theme, we're going to do science fiction again today. Bears, before we get going on today's movie, you've got some exciting efforts. I don't know how you have time to do all of this stuff, but uh, tell us first about your contributions at the All Genders, Lifestyles, and Identities Film Festival. Yeah, I decided that running one festival wasn't wasn't enough, and so I, I moved from the board of directors of AGLIF, the All Genders, Lifestyles, and Identities Film Festival, to being the artistic director. That is the oldest queer festival in the Southwest and the fourth oldest in the country, so it's got a th- 34-year history, and uh, by the time you're hearing this podcast, we will have just finished our 34th festival, which I really wish I had just finished this 34th festival now instead of having to go into it for the next two and a half weeks. (laughs) So I want to be in the future when you're listening to this episode. And so, just for future reference, because by the time this drops, the festival, like you said, will probably have been over, but this is an every year event in Austin, Texas, correct? Exactly. It's in it's in Austin, which for some re- it's in August in Austin, which for some reason Austin has pride in August, even though every other state in the country and I, I really every other place in the world pride month is in June. But here in, in Austin, we decided to pick the hottest month of the year to have our outdoor pride uh, celebration and parade. But yeah, it's usually the second or the third week of August. And uh this year we're, we are playing, or will have played, 90 uh, films, including 50 features. Tell the viewers at home, so like, you've never gone to a film festival, if someone says there are 90 features playing, what does that mean? Like, do you have lots of theaters going at one time? Are they across town? Are they all in one building? How do you pick and choose? Yeah, for, for us, I always like to have all the films at the same location, so it's easier for you to you know, change your mind. But yeah, I'll have two or three f- theaters running simultaneously and you can pick which screening you want to go to and now in the wonderful world of virtual if you miss a screening uh, because you had to see something at the same time you can go home that night and watch it at two o'clock in the morning on the virtual platform so that is one of the things that the pandemic has done for film festivals is it's forced us all to go online as well so you can only watch it set time period though during the fest during the festival though yeah for the in-person screening it'll play that one time um, some festivals, like really big festivals, will play films like four or five times. Like Sundance will play a film like six times over the course of 10 days. With a smaller festival like us, we've got four days. For for other worlds, we've got four days. For Aglif, we've got eight. And we're trying to get as much content in there as possible so that people can really see all the newest films in the genre. Awesome. 
And in addition to doing the All Genders, Lifestyles, and Identities Film Festival, you also do Other Worlds Austin Film... Or sorry, it's just Other Worlds Film Festival. Now you dropped the Austin, didn't you? That's right. Yes, we are now uh, global or galaxial. So it's just Other Worlds everywhere. Yes, Other Worlds Film Festival. And that's in December. First week of December. That is still going to stay in Austin, right? It is going to stay in Austin, although I am having conversations with another person who runs a theater in Chicago about doing a franchise and bringing our content to Chicago right after we do it at our festival. Oh, so it's like going on tour, maybe. Exactly. Well, that be that would be more bang for your buck for all your efforts then. So, well, thank you for telling us about all of these awesome things and do check them out because these film festivals, if you love this podcast, I'm pretty sure you're going to like that. And then the Other Worlds Festival, to be more specific, that is science fiction and horror? Yes. I would say it's 70% science fiction, 30% horror. Okay. But 100% fun. Yes. <laughs> All right. Bears, if you could get in a time machine and go back in time and watch a premiere of any movie, what movie are you choosing to see? I thought this was a great question, and I had a real hard time picking an answer. So I, I got stuck in the same year of the movie that we're going to talk about today, which is 1986. And I want to go back in to the premiere of one of my favorite movies of all time, Labyrinth. Because at that premiere, of course, was David Bowie and a very young, very beautiful, very crush-worthy, one of my first crushes, Jennifer Connelly. And then also Puppets. Because it was a Jim Henson film, they brought Puppets premiere, which is pretty amazing. Uh, it was in London. And that movie, I still... I still watch it at least every year, and I can still do the opening chant of one of the songs, uh, and I do it probably every month. It drives my wife crazy, which is, you remind me of the babe. What babe? The babe with the power. What power? The power of voodoo. Who do? You do. Do what? Remind me of the babe. It's a great David Bowie lyric. You know what? I'm realizing now that one could pick this answer based on the ability to go in cosplayed. Yes. As something that nobody else knows what they're about to see, and that I, I just now realize that. Nathan, I don't know if this changes your answer or not, but uh, if you could go back in time, Time Machine, see a premiere of a movie, what are you going to see? The obvious answer to that is I would absolutely love to see one of the original Star Wars movies in theaters. But since we're on this kind of movie today, I would love to see Close Encounters of the Third Kind because Uh. that's the... That's the kind of movie that puts together all the things that I love most in a film. It's got a John Williams soundtrack. That soundtrack is intrinsically built into the language of contacting aliens. It's got the weird X-Files mystery element, people going crazy in a sci-fi film, alien mysteries at the end, unanswered questions. It's got it all. That's a great choice. And, you know, you're right, it's tempting to pick. Star Wars for the first time. Maybe given the fact that we're traveling in a time machine in this question, I want to go back and see Back to the Future for the first time. Nice. Now, what's the last movie you saw? Well, the last movie I saw that wasn't for my job, because that's not fair, because I have to watch movies like every day. Um, and you wouldn't know any of the movies. And most of them are terrible because that's I weed through them. So the last movie I saw for fun was Black Widow. And it was the first time I'd been in a movie theater in 18 months. So that was really awesome. And I'd been waiting for that movie for a long time, not just because it got delayed, but also because uh, I've been saying that they should make a Black Widow movie pretty much since Iron Man 2, when she first made her appearance. And I'm glad that they finally got off their butt and made a female-centric uh, movie. Yes, uh, every Marvel fan has been saying, where. where is that? Nathan, what about you? What's the last movie you saw? The last movie I saw was actually the extended edition of the Two Towers film, which 
I'm really excited sometime a little bit further down the months next year we'll we'll be having some more Lord of the Rings on our on our watch lists and I can't be more excited. Okay, yeah. Yeah, are you ready for the sequel Lord of the Rings the Three Towers? <laughs> I was going to hope that it uh, at least goes up as a exponentiation, so maybe it's the Four Towers. <laughs> okay. It's got to be bigger and better, yeah. Even more towers. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I'm a Lord of the Rings fan. I, 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 I'm joking on that one, just in case everybody was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 so my last movie that I saw was Jim Carrey's The Cable Guy uh, and Matthew Broderick in that one. It's uh, just been a while since I had seen it, so I revisited it. And I had a good time. That's a great dark comedy. You know, it just gets weirder and weirder as it goes. I didn't like it when I first saw it as a kid, but like, I think I was at an age where I think I just felt bad for Matthew Broderick's character the whole time. But now I, <laughs> now I've, I guess I've loosened up and I'm like, eh, Matthew Broderick's character is not a real person. I'm having fun with this. And you just, <laughs> you just enjoy the weird, dark performance of Jim Carrey. So yeah, I, I'm with you, Bears. It's, I think it gets better with time for me, or at least with age. Today's movie, though, what are we going to cover? Bears. Flight of the Navigator. That's right. Flight of the Navigator comes out in 1986. It made for a budget of $17.5 million. It grosses $18.5 million, so it makes some money. And it places Woo. in the box office that year at 48. The movie placing ahead of it was House, and the movie that placed behind it was JoJo Dancer, Your Life is Calling, which if there was ever a movie title that sounded made up, you know, this many years later, it's that. <laughs> it's Gregory Hines. It's a dance movie. I've actually seen that. You've seen JoJo Dancer, Your Life is Calling? Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty solid movie. It's a drama, so very serious. Okay, okay. That, that was unexpected. I was like, well, nobody's seen this movie, but you have. That's great. And the number one movie that year, which I'm sure we've all seen, is Top Gun. I have not seen Top Gun. What? We got to get you on a highway right to the danger zone. <laughs> <laughs> a reference that I only know because of the TV show Archer. I've got the need, the need for speed. <laughs> Oh, uh, well, uh, I, it's only a matter of time before it comes up on the show. It, definitely only a matter of time. Uh, IMDb gives Flight of the Navigator 6.9. The Rotten Tomatoes critics give Flight of the Navigator an 84%, and the audience scores at 75%. So a little spread out there. The critics kind of like this a little bit more. No awards to talk about. So, Bears, tell the people at home, what was your background with Flight of the Navigator? When did you first see it, and what was it like returning to it today? Well, I wanted to check the date on when it was released. Just, just to confirm my story, because I have a very distinct memory of the first time I saw this film, which was actually the last time I saw this film. Uh, this is only the second time I've ever seen it for the show. So I was, I, I was young, and I had been sent to this awful sports camp for the summer, like a day camp. I was not somebody who played a lot of sports. So uh, when there was a rain out and we weren't able to play outside, they would throw us all on the bus to the movies. I remember that didn't know what this movie was. We'd never heard of it. Uh, we just got we didn't they didn't even tell us what we were seeing, but obviously it had to be like clean because it was like a Disney film. Um, and we just sat down and we watched it, and I'm I was mesmerized. I loved it. So my memory was very positive, and that would have been 1986. I would I would have been young. I, I I'm not going to reveal my age, but uh, but yes, uh, I had not seen it since then. That or you've done time traveling and you haven't aged a bit since then, and possibly had your memory wiped. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. You just came back from the movie theater. Your parents were eight years older. They lived in another house, you know. Yes, yes. That that moment is terrifying in this movie. But I guess we'll we'll get back. Sure. So, <laughs> so how's, it, hold, coming, how's it holding up to it, to like coming back to it today and studying it a little closer with adult eyes? You know, I was surprised it really holds up. 
it was a really quality film. I very much enjoyed it. I watched it again with my wife last night and uh, turned off all the lights and just sat and, and enjoyed it. And it was like a fun trip back. I mean, it's, it's that time when they made movies that, you know, were about happy things and people are happy and good. And I don't know. It was, it was nice. It was, it was a fun trip. It definitely, definitely. This is, I think this podcast, uh, does a lot of different things, but this is definitely fills our need for just the nostalgic kids movie. I'm shocked that I haven't come up more often, and uh, this was this was a lot of fun to get into that. Nathan, what about you? Uh, I know you have uh, a different uh, story with Flight of the Navigator. I think you said when you first saw this, this one was a little scary for you. This was a movie that I saw at an age that I actually have no memory of watching it myself. I have another suspicion. See, my dad and I share certain uh, movie-watching habits, shall we say, or things that we get very uncomfortable with when a movie starts playing with. And it's not horror. It's not anything like that. It's entirely to do with when someone ends up in an awkward situation that they're not sure how to deal with and start behaving in an uncomfortable way. And uh, the first, let's say, third of this movie is essentially entirely David being in an awkward situation. And so I don't think I even made it to the sci-fi goodness that is the that is the end of this movie. Probably I probably oh no you oh no so this this was initially a walkout for you huh this was this was a probably VHS can we just watch Star Wars okay okay but now now that you've come back to it was this your first time all the way making it through it or this was my first time all the way making it through yeah and and let's say that. I accept that this is a kid's movie and that a lot of it was intended for that reason. But man, this is a uh, this is a film that strikes me as one of the most product placementy, cash grabby, let's make kids for the toys movies that I have ever seen in my entire life. Oh, come on, you just said Star Wars. Yeah, seriously. I mean, <laughs> I don't think there were any toys for Navigator. Uh, I mean, Pierce is like, wait a minute, I need to, I must have this. <laughs> I'm, I'm about to look it up right now. I, I don't believe there you. must. I need, have I need been this toys in my life. Navigator. You have the ship. You have the advertisement catalog that was laid out on his bed at NASA when they when they take him to his cell. They have the cute robot Ralph. You have the other cool robot. Max and the ship, you've got, oh man, this was so, this was so, let's set up things to be sold, but maybe the movie didn't do well enough to to make those waves. I think it did well given its path to getting created, which we'll talk about later. But for me, this is my first time to it. I, with the right age that I would have been able to have seen this as a kid, maybe not right when it comes out, but I mean, VHS store, it totally would have been there and it just didn't get picked up by me. And because I'm a product of the times, do have not necessarily nostalgia for this movie. I don't know if you've ever had this, Bears, but like, if you just, a movie that's from your childhood, it just sends you back there. And it's just like, wow, this is strangely satisfying. Yeah, you're able to like time travel back into your body as what it would have been like to experience as a child. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of uh, happiness that you watch from this. I mean, if you put one hat on and you start to pick apart the writing or the acting and stuff as we often do on this, then you can totally go to negative town and find all kinds of problems with this movie. However, if you put your hat on and says, I was a kid of the 80s and this is fun, 
you're gonna have a great time. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna probably come at this more from that point. I'll I'll few comments along the way about um, being a little more neutral about it, but uh, this is a lot of fun. For its target audience, I think that this is a really fun film. It's definitely a uh, placing yourself into that position film and wanting to feel powerful the way that, that, that it drives you to be. Yes. And I think from that lens, I think that is what this film is all about. Definitely. And we will spoil Fly to the Navigator, so if you haven't seen it, hang in there. We'll be back after these messages. And we will spoil it, so this is your final warning. Or pause it and go watch it, and then come back and listen to the rest of this. Yeah, yeah, do that. It's on Disney+. Plus. Definitely, yes, actually good point, yes. For free on Disney, well, it's not for free, but it's included on your Disney Plus subscription. You all have Disney+. Plus. Don't lie. (laughs) We'll be back after this. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we missed, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals. Like you. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. All right, we're back, and this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. Now, Nathan, for those who haven't seen Flight of the Navigator since 1986, tell the audience. Refresh their memory. Six-year-olds in a theater audience marvel at the wonders of a flying saucer that is a frisbee. They coo in excitement as a mysterious shadow falls over a family cast by a blimp. They gasp while young David Freeman walks through the woods to retrieve his prankster younger brother, and out of the darkness looms a water tower. They cringe as, from his waterfront bedroom, ten-year-old David uses a spyglass to creep on the girl out on a boat. But when he takes a fall and wakes up the following morning to discover that someone else has moved into his house, those six-year-olds will be forced to wait for almost 45 minutes while a touching family drama plays out, because David Freeman has actually transported eight years into his future, where police, then his family, then lots of shrinks, are mystified and emotional about his weird, unaging reappearance. But fortunately for our impatient six-year-olds, NASA security, who have found UFO, are doing interesting stuff. They have figured out that David's weird EEG picture of a spaceship is in fact a picture of their spaceship. NASA security swoops in to guilt his parents into letting them take David away, then put him in a maximum security room with a door guard who has been told nothing about him except to flirt at maximum overdrive. After some more interrogation, he escapes from one product placement item to another, discovering the ship itself, which lets him aboard. Finally, our patient six-year-olds can soar as David evades NASA security helicopters, goes to space and meets a bunch of other abducted aliens, and bond with the artificial intelligence named Max that abducted him in the first place over fart jokes. He flies home, guided by the pyromaniac antics of his younger, now older, brother Jeff, but realizes that he would rather go back in time so that he can be the same age as that one girl, and also so his family doesn't have to, you know, endure years of horrible emotional distress. And now he's friends with the cute alien, too. More like a pet, though. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's that's great. You know, you latched onto something right off the bat. You said in the beginning he was creeping on the girl Jennifer that he likes. I have a Jennifer Bradley. Yeah, Jennifer Bradley. Yeah. Is it creepier if you use a telescope or binoculars? Uh, I think because the telescope you have to like really set, and it was in one place, and he walked away and comes back. It's like he does it more than once. Whereas binoculars, you kind of take with you. They're more spur of the moment. This is like a plan. Okay, so so you're th- so you're in the camp of telescope is the creepier peeping town way to be then. Telescope is expensive. Everybody has a pair of binoculars. But if you bought a telescope just to look at girls, that's an investment. No, that, I, I, I was wondering that when Nathan brought that, the creepy, the creep factor. But uh, bigger picture here, Bears. Let's talk about this. This movie has, I guess, time warps or time jumps is a better way of putting it. It's time dilation, Russell. <laughs> okay, time dilation. And, um, and we have spaceships. We have government uh, shady government entities what do you love about this movie oh i just it's so fun i mean you're put in the in the position of a boy who has no idea what's going on i mean the it, it starts off a little terrifying as he turns to his home to find out that it's not his home anymore and his parents are not there and he doesn't know who these people are and then he sees his brother who when he disappeared two years younger than him and is now eight years older than him so uh, that's a little terrifying um, and obviously Jennifer Bradley is now way too old for him to get with, and that's really disappointing. And then, you know, NASA kind of takes advantage of him, I and mean, they lock him in a room, but then he gets to have the ultimate joy of having his own pet alien spaceship and fly all around and, you know, become a hero. And he doesn't have to do too much. I'm like, he's never really put in too much danger. He just flies around and enjoys the scenery and and meet some cute, cuddly puppet things that were not designed by Jim Henson. You're right about that. This movie is keeps it light. Like the da- the sense of danger is merely a, when am I ever going to get back to my parents? Is predominantly the the uncomfortable feeling that you have as a kid. But you're right. There's no there's no alien intrusion. There's no sense that uh, he's not going to make it. He just wants to make it home to his folks. I even felt like Howard Hessman, who plays the NASA leader, the NASA research scientist. Take when David got taken in the ship, he seemed legitimately worried for David. I mean, obviously he wanted his ship back. I thought he was more worried about his ship. I don't know. I, I guess I just wanted him. I I felt like maybe he didn't want the kid to die. That wouldn't be good either. I almost feel like that would have been an after point that somebody would have said, like you know, like of like, ah, oh, crap, the ship's gone. The boy's in it, and his dad called. Right, the boy, the boy. <laughs> That's terrible. Not as bad, but but still terrible. Nathan, um, again, I, I recall you telling me ahead of time that you were a little bit frightened by this. The beginning of this movie feels different than the second half of this movie. The, la- the second half of this movie is, I would call it joyride. The first half of this movie, though, is a little bit, I would say, suspenseful and mysterious for, for a kid's movie. What's your take on that? Yeah, so like I alluded to earlier, it's really the suspense and the worry and the sense of being out of place and not being able to do anything about it that's what the horror of this movie is um something i really respect is the adults in this film are really doing their best legitimately i think to put him at ease yes try to do what they can to get him back into into society in some way um i totally get it from nasa's point of view they've discovered this ship they've discovered a boy about it it's a serious issue from their end and they're doing i think doing their best to put him at ease on their end so yes everyone has ulterior motives but that doesn't necessarily make them bad motives that just means that 
they're trying to do things that are kind of hard to deal with. And that is the thing that I respect most about this movie, that there aren't really any villains per se. It's just sort of an awful situation that's happened. I thought Sarah Jessica Parker was a little bit of a villain. She's trying to take advantage of this young boy on his own, but she flirts with them. <laughs> it's really dangerous. I, I, I thought that was... You talk about him creeping on Jennifer Bradley. I think it was really creepy when she was like, you're kind of cute if you were a little older. It's weird. I feel like in a different time, I feel like that was more of a thing that um, an older girl would say just to... Um, I guess boost a confidence kind of thing, you know, kind of thing. I don't think I don't think people would say that now anymore. If you can kind of tell that maybe he had a crush on you, you're you're kind of quote unquote letting him down easy, but also making him feel good about himself by saying like, you know, if you were older. So I I took that to in a less creepy way maybe of a, like I I think she could kind of tell he was into her. <laughs> I mean it's it's problematic for David though because he should be older. He should be 8 years older. He should be, you know, almost old enough that he could date her. Oh, you're right. This is a reverse big situation. He's 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 an older person stuck in a kid's body there. There you go. <laughs> oh man, that, that 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 I just described a movie that is not getting made. <laughs> <laughs> just I'm, I'm imagining the pitch meeting with him, like it's like okay he's an adult man but he's stuck in the body of a boy and he's gonna be hitting on this adult woman i don't think this is a good idea you shouldn't finish no let me finish i don't think you should <laughs> so jennifer bradley is a really big question for me in this movie not for that reason but because she walks into the room and asks so who did you kill to be imprisoned you mean in carolyn cell? uh and carolyn mcadams Jennifer Bradley is or, the girl or, yeah, on the boat yeah, who we never see again, which is, I think, one of my biggest disappointments. Is That's like right. They set up this Jennifer Bradley thing, and then when he comes back to 1978 at the end of the film, sorry, I just ruined it, he does, the first thing he does isn't to go <laughs> find Jennifer Bradley, which is what I would do. That's a good point. Good point. He's had a preview for Carol. Oh, that's true. Now, she might almost be the right age. Oh, that's true. That's also another right interesting oh. way that this could have gone. Wow, you guys should have been back in the writing room in the mid-80s. I like, I, like, I, I like all of these things. My writing room brain would have assumed that that was the same character, except it's not. Oh, oh you mean like <laughs> a sneaky, like, oh, I changed my name. My name used to be Jennifer before I was placed in the witness protection program. Exactly, exactly. But but anyway, so 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 Carol comes in and she's like, "Who did you murder to get imprisoned in here?" As if this is a building with a bunch of other cells where NASA security prisoners have been imprisoned and maybe some of them did do that. But also she's like really perky and, "Oh, this is so much fun. I'm in the prison with all the fun mad scientists prisoners who all tried to take over the world and now are imprisoned here. Oh, but this is this one kid. Eh, he's probably pretty cool. You know what? My mind also went to Back to the Future 2. You know, if I'm David, I mean, I guess Back to the Future 2 hasn't come out yet to give him this idea. But I mean, I would go get one of the sports almanacs like Biff and build, a, build up an incredible empire yeah. out of knowing all the sports betting results on every, every sporting event for the next eight years. He could have put his family up in a giant high-rise condo. I mean, he really, he really missed out on this opportunity. I don't know. His family has some pretty good houses. Like I, they do have I beachfront. Mean, his family's doing pretty well. They have great, great living locations. They do have beachfront property. Yeah, in in Fort Lauderdale, which can't be cheap. I do think that the implication is, nevertheless, that they did have a downturn in their fortunes because they had gone from a two-story house to a one-story house when he re visits with them later oh i took that just to mean we only have one kid and it's 
there's there's a sadness within that. You know what I mean? Like, oh, well, our family's not as big anymore. I guess, well, we need a two-bedroom house. So, I mean, I think it's all those things. It's, I mean, that, that would be, this is a pretty serious issue that this movie is addressing here. And, and again, I think it does it in a great way. It really addresses the adults in the room are all trying to help. The They might have sort of slightly different goals, but for the most part, for all NASA knows, David could be programmed by aliens to be some sort of deadly killing machine. He could come with some interstellar virus that he's releasing to the entire, you know, country. Absolutely. He could be after the cows. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think that uh, the brother is a real interesting character, too, when you think about the uh, the way this family deals with him. I mean, like, Jeff was a kind of a little jerk when he was eight, but when he's, by the time he's 16, he's, like, really swell. Like, when the parents leave in the in the hospital to go talk, talk to the doctor, like, he stays with them, and he's got... He's got a, a folded up picture of his missing poster that he keeps with him all the time to remember him. I mean, that's really sweet for someone who's 16. I, I thought that was, that's a kid who probably had a very interesting life, uh, Jeff Freeman, age 16, and who now will not have any of those growing, uh, you know, experiences in this new reality that gets created when David goes back to 1978. So Jeff will not experience loss and therefore may turn into the stupid scuzz bucket that he always was. Wow. The real horror of this movie is that when David goes back in time, that original timeline keeps going, but he's still gone. That's right. <laughs> Depending on the, how you think about time travel, if we're in, if we're in a closed-loop su- system or a you know, branching loop. I, I think that that was probably, going back to the older brother being coming the younger brother, and being missing for eight years. I think that was probably one of my favorite parts of this movie. It was one of those things where even as an adult, that there's something very touching about that. And if you ever had a sibling, which I have an older sister, and we may not have just been on, we just were in very different wavelengths. There's, you know, like um, seven and a half years difference between us. And so I was that annoying younger brother. And uh, I'm not gonna lie, I had fun annoying her. Like it was like, a, it's just like a provoking kind of thing that you do. And but to see uh, as you age and to see how that would be and if they were truly not and to become the older sibling and to then have somebody who you've never had before be somebody that you're kind of overwatching, protecting and playing big brother to, which is a role you would have never done in your life. That's a pretty profound moment when you really think about it. And uh, I thought that was actually one of the best parts of this movie. Yeah, that was really nice. And he doesn't just accept that the, the brother's back. He goes into the medical literature and tries to figure out what could possibly have happened. He starts reading about ways people age, reading about that sort of thing to try to figure out if there's something he can do. I think, I think that we don't spend as much time with the parents. I think you see facial acting. I, I think there's some degree of um, crying happiness that, that's there, like of just like, oh my gosh, how can this be? This is wonderful, but also strange and unexpected. I think a, l- a few more moments with the parents to show the weight of, you know, if you were returned to your parents eight years later, much less unaged. I think there's something, and I don't think that's a scary thing. I don't think that's too challenging for the kids, certainly not for these 80s kids movies, which Bears pointed out, it's a different era. The movies of this era are just more fun joyride kind of things. Disney challenges younger kids way more with things like Inside Out and Up and things like that now. So, I mean, um, I, I don't think kids are necessarily more sophisticated than they were before, but movies are made at a deeper level than they were at this point in time. 
So obviously none of that happened, but I actually think a few more parent moments might have been a nice thing to also play that home of just like, this is, this is insane. He's back and I love it and it's crazy and I'm scared and what happened and all that stuff. So, But that said, you might have a different read on this, but for me, a lot of this movie is about this search for sort of a brotherly relationship that David has wanted the whole time. Um, I don't think it's any coincidence that the ship is funny in the particular way that it is. I think that it's responding to David trying to find someone that is kind of an equal as a brother, where at the beginning of the film, he wanted his little brother to be on his level. He wanted his little brother to not just stop pranking him, but sort of be, you know, working with him in the way that eventually he gets the ship to do. And that's the relationship he builds with the ship is more of as brothers than anything else. So I think that the parents, while very important to the film, obviously, um, that's why they were less. Yeah. And in, and in fairness, when you're marketing a movie to kids, oftentimes they'll give you an orphan character. They'll completely remove the parents out of it. The emphasis of the parents is definitely what they do. When you're making a movie for kids. Well, it's sort of also a replacement of the parents is the other thing that's going on. Because you replace the father with Howard Hessman as a, as a new father figure for NASA. And you have Carolyn McAdams as sort of a motherly figure. Um, so it's sort of like as he's being brought into a new timeline, he's also having his family replaced. And I guess if, if you, yeah, then that goes with then this is the, the, the uh, voice of the being the brother, basically a new family. Bears, I know you love robots and movies. I remember when we did Forbidden Planet, you loved Robbie. What do you think about the ship here from Flight of the Navigator and its personality, which is voiced by Paul Rubens? Uh, it's it's credited as Paul Mall, which is like a hidden name uh, to be cute and to hide the identity of it. But it's Pee Wee. Yeah, it's like I had forgotten that, and I was tr- I actually spent the first part of the movie trying to figure out why I recognize that voice. And then when he gets the information down, like his one moment where he laughs just a little bit, David says, you know, laugh. It it puts a smile on your face. It makes you happy. And he does a little bit of a laugh. And I was like, oh my God, Pee Wee Herman. Oh, definitely. And that just also brought me back joy from my childhood because Playhouse was probably my favorite show growing up. And I used to watch him on MTV all the time when he would guest host. And, oh, I was such a big Pee Wee Herman fan. So, uh, I think as far as a character goes, it's really interesting because he has no personality at the start. And then when he downloads, he basically has David's personality because he downloads David's personality. So he becomes like a mirror of David. I like that, that David has a piece of information that the computer doesn't have and the computer, like they need each other. And I like that a lot. And I actually wish the mind meld had happened a little sooner. Maybe even Maybe even the computer behaves in this way instead of having this you know, all-knowing, you know, kind of, I would say, stiff attitude, uh, maybe it's it's lost from the beginning and has part of David's personality in there. And, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons he needs to reach back out to him. So I want to get to that even sooner, because I, I really, I think it's way more fun to have a wisecracking, fun-loving robot than it is to have this, uh, you know, very rigid, like, compliance compliance i like that i wanted to start to work that into my own conversation from here on out just if somebody asked me to do something else compliance russell would like this movie to be taken from the opposite perspective where a robotic kid walks up 
to the door of an old couple who've moved into this house recently and demands entry and creeps them out with all of his mathematical speak and isn't that daryl alien worlds until they finally hand him over to nat nasa yeah <laughs> you know I I, another movie from the same time period <laughs> you know, i don't i don't i'm not saying i want to do that with this movie but i like that idea for a movie too so i mean nathan 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 you're loading your writer's bag with all these good ideas here like none of them are in this movie but there's like so many other movies you can do with this so if not, if nothing else, an X Files episode. Which, by the way, I think the first part of this movie felt like an X Files episode to me. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, this movie, this the first part of this movie felt like, well, at least the very beginning felt like a parody of an X Files episode, and then yeah, and then it transitioned into that. You mean a, the parody with the uh, the the saucer and the Goodyear blimp and all those kind of misdirect, which I thought yeah. was really cute. It was. I don't know if you guys feel it the was. same way, but I feel like they did an awesome job in the spaceship. They did an awesome job with the voice of the spaceship. It has so much personality, but the, the the robot that David climbs into that brings the food around, that was like the worst robot ever. Like, I mean, that was like the robots that would have existed then, and it wouldn't have been at all exciting to even see like on the screen. Like, it's a brown box on wheels. I mean, it has no face. It has no like eyes. It has, I mean, I'm aware that it's a government thing, but I mean, I think that that, that should have been something that had personality to it. It drives around, it drives over a bump, and you see the side doors bounce a little open as it goes, because it's just a little prop like that. Yeah, no, agreed. I think you have to make the technology, though, less impressive so that you can really emphasize the alien technology and, and how advanced they are. It's, it's, that's what makes it terrifying for NASA to find this ship that they, you know, it's just floating in the air. It's done, not even landing on the ground. Okay, well, maybe for recast, then we re- recast that one for J5 from Blank Man. Yes, uh, uh, um, exactly. Yeah, I don't, I, I just feel like there's, uh, Disney makes things cute. And I'm wondering, I, I uh, know that not, this is going down the road a little bit. Disney didn't have this one right away. They took it over. And I'm wondering, that seems like a gross oversight to me to introduce something cute. Yeah, yeah. Though they, I think they bought it already made. I think it was done, and they came and sold it, and, and the producers sold it after it was shot. But there are moments that get reshot. Are there? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm just going to skip overhead now. Like, yeah, we're on it. Let's go there. I was going to say, David like moves on. Like he has his hair bleached and like is in another role. They bring him back in to reshoot some stuff, and he has a wig on. And so like. His hair length and stuff throughout the later part of this movie is inconsistent, and it's because there is reshooting. Do you know what scenes were reshot? According to Joey Kramer, during the post-production, the film's editors decided that some of the scenes needed to be reshot. Kramer was flown back to the set from British Columbia, and he had bleached hair, and shortly after the principal of photography wrapped, he had to wear a wig to reshoot those scenes. The wig is evident through the time travel sequence near the very end of the film. And in the second half of the film, there's moments where David's hair changes noticeably between the shots, and it happens several times. I did not notice. Well, had they not put the wig on him, then it would have been super noticeable that he all of a sudden had like hair that looked like Sting from the police or something. So, Unless that's, that's an effect. Maybe that's what happens as you jump time. That's why he didn't want to take him in time, because his body was too fragile. His hair might change. I know. Maybe he, maybe he looks the same way, but his hair is completely bleached out from the space travel. And his family won't recognize him. Oh, my. He took a bunch of 
intermediate steps in his timeline back when he was traveling back in time. He didn't just go all the way. He infilled those scenes. Yeah, and then he robbed a bank and dyed his hair so that no one would recognize him. Because you know Joey Kramer robbed a bank. Yes. Later in yeah. life. <laughs> yeah. There's a documentary soon to come, I believe, that I haven't gotten to see yet because it might be out. It's coming, if not. Oh, and Flight to the Navigator. And uh, to your point, Bears, uh, he, he had a he had an interesting life path there. So Yeah, his, his success after Flight of the Navigator did not match his success before Flight of the Navigator. When he was in Clan of the Cave Bear with uh, Daryl Hannah and uh, uh, Runaways with uh, Magnum P.I. Oh, I didn't know the pat the back catalog on him. So so he's coming in with a little bit of experience then. That's actually a good I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah. Yeah, he was in this, uh, this uh, Michael Crichton film called Runaways with uh with Tom Selleck and uh, Gene Simmons from Kiss. Played the villain. That sounds very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's kind of a great trashy movie yeah you should watch it sometimes you'd, you'd probably get a kick out of it. I was gonna say, it all sounded pretty tight like it's like it's got tom Selleck. it's a michael Crichton book and then then you then you then you hit me out of like left field it's like <laughs> with gene simmons in it <laughs> and i was kind of like doing this one of these things is not like the other <laughs> yeah yeah and then he was in clan of the cave bear which was the first movie i ever saw with naked people in it that's that's a big movie moment, really. I've, I've never asked that at the opening of a show, but I might have to include that at some point. So there you go. If you ever do like Basic Instinct or something like that, then those are the kind of appropriate questions. Yeah. I don't think anybody's ever even suggested doing a movie of that nature, but we'll have. Oh, I would love now that I'm run, now that I'm running the queer festival. You got to bring me in to do something super sexy. Somehow, Russell, on a show where you don't want people cursing, I'm not entirely sure why you expect people to submit such requests. It's every movie from every era, man. We gotta cover it all. So, uh, I actually was a little bit troubled. I I felt like there were two good movies in here, and one of them is the more suspenseful movie that this is, probably for the first two-thirds of the movie, and the last part of the movie is this also really light, fun joyride, and I felt like the joyride got cut short. I'm not saying I necessarily needed to make this movie any longer, but did you kind of feel like he could have had some more adventures in in the spaceship and enjoy the fruits of flying this awesome craft around? Like, go somewhere? Like, wouldn't it be like a kid's, like, mentality to be like, I'm going to fly under the arch, or I'm going to go through the Grand Canyon and, like, you know, start doing some things. Maybe go to another planet or whatever. Or have the idea of, like, I'm going to drop on Jennifer, Jennifer Bradley's house and then realize, oh, she's old. Like, I didn't think about that. Like, I mean, there's there's moments here where I'm sitting there going, like, there's a lot of playful stuff that we didn't get to do, and this movie wraps up a little too soon for me. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I feel like he doesn't take advantage of having his own personal spaceship, and uh, and his biggest concern is just getting back to his family, which I, I get. But but yeah, it's, it's a missed opportunity, because, and I think it goes back to the fact that there isn't really any danger in this film. There's no villain after him. Like, like imagine what it would be like if the spaceship had to get back to its planet because there's another spaceship coming to get it. I like that. Or something like that. And then, and then you've got you know, something that, he's, that David has to defeat, um, and that's why he has to learn to fly the ship, because the ship uh, needs his help, and that's why they really need a navigator, not just that he needs directions home. I don't know. Or David lands somewhere and somebody else gets his ship and he has to get it back or something, you know? Otherwise, he has no hope of getting back. You know, like, I mean, I feel like you're right. I feel like there's another turn here. I know it's a kid's movie, but I think a little bit of tension 
again, they, we just we just got to the joyride, and um, it's such a short joyride. I, I feel like it's like the if you ever rode the the Back to the Future ride at Universal Studios, you stand in a line that's like three hours long, and then you climb into a little car that just kind of is a glorified. Did you ever see the little pony in front of like the grocery store that you put a quarter into and it just rocks back and forth? <laughs> yeah, that's what Back to the Future the ride was. Like you would just get in there and there was a screen at the front of it and you sit in there like in a car and you get out of there and your dad turns to you and goes like, "Why did we stand in line for 3 hours for that?" <laughs> like this seems like a very personal response you're discussing, Russell. <laughs> that Universal Studios did happen. Yeah, that, that that that's very autobiographical. But what I am saying is the Joyride not equivalent to the buildup that got there. And I wanted more Joyride. Especially when you got Pee Wee Herman. You know, you, you gotta take advantage of that. I know, exactly. And that's, it goes back to why I was kind of just urging along the computer to have the mind meld already in place when they meet together because Paul Mall or Paul Rubens, however you want to phrase it, is so much more fun after he after that mind meld kind of works and kind of doesn't. Yeah. And maybe this is my change one thing being spoiled a little bit here, but it's hard to maintain tension in this movie when a certain point arrives and there is nothing to be done except eventually circle around to him going back in time again. Well, he has to make the choice. It's dangerous for him. He might not make it. It's a risk that he has to take. Yeah, but this is this is film writing and this is my adult eyes looking at it and but I think that this is a movie that would have benefited hugely from knowing that there was a sequel because then you could have had some other question being decided like what if at the end of the movie he can't fit any, in anywhere and he's not told that and he's told straight out that he can't time travel but that Maybe if he goes somewhere else, he might be able to discover it. And the movie ends with him launching off into the universe and setting up a sequel. Man, I, I don't know if screenwriters get paid more than architects, but I feel like Nathan is just putting his resume out there, like flexing his screenwriting skills on this right now. Like, these are all good ideas, by the way, Nathan. So. <laughs> well, you know, they've been trying to do a remake of this film for years, for like eight years. It's come up several times. They just can't get it off the ground. Um, but yeah i don't i don't understand why this seems like a really good ripe for the picking remake material yeah especially if they make i really if they do it they have to make the spaceship look very similar because that spaceship is really great and this and the, the for the time for 1986 the cg on it is just really really good you know what this will officially be the least structured show ever but let's just go into it right now nathan i mean what about this amazing piece of digital effects that we've got here yeah so this is something that has a really cool video by the YouTube channel VFX Cool uh, that is sort of a documentary which covers the making of. And you may be surprised to know from your modern eyes, but almost none of this movie is CGI. Most of it is one of two things. It's either a life-size model that was just hung on a crane, actually two different models to allow them to hang it in different shots from different angles because they had to attach it they had to have this perfect seamless metal. So in order to have an attachment somewhere, they had to have a specific life-size model that was then attached to a crane truck that would then be hidden behind the, the, uh, the mock-up in the shot. Or scenes like, for example, the staircase emerging, which was a miniature. It was actually stop-motion animated. Um, there are steps that they walk up, which are actually... Um, it's just a camera trick. There's 
structure that is just hidden by the steps themselves in perspective. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, there's steel beams holding up each. So they put like a steel beam, each steel tread. And if you could imagine, like they're like move, they're like angled at like say a 45 or 30 degree angle, and the camera is shot at that same 30, whatever, 30 degree, 45 degree angle, so that the stair blocks the supporting element that goes down to the ground. So I mean, um, it's really it's really simple, but it's also really awesome. <laughs> it's really effective. Yeah, I was sure that was CGI. No, but I mean, like you could wave your hand under it, and and, and the shadows and all that stuff. It's uh, as long as you watch where you're shooting from, it's super duper real and they don't have to rely on blue screen effects at the time or, pa- or backdrop paintings or anything like that. Yeah. And a lot of the ships flying in daylight then, that's that's just model shots because you can do those things and you just make sure that you're being careful about what's in your studio to reflect off of. Um, so really the CGI is the time travel. Well, the, 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 the ship morphing. Shape, yes, yes, the ship. Amazing. That looks really good for 1986. And honestly, I think it looks really good for today's day. I mean, it reminds me of like six years later, they're doing um, Terminator 2, and you've got T-1000, and hit, and hit, you know, it, it's an earlier version of that, the like the liquid metal. It is actually the same effects technique. This leads to the Terminator. It's yeah. amazing. And it's, and, and, it, and it's six years earlier. I mean, that's, that's what's really impressive. And it's a small company based in Nor- in Norway um you know that's using this technology it's not it's not like weta you know the, it's not the weta workshop here we didn't have that it's just people figuring out how to do this stuff in the early days i like the interior of the ship too with all the compartments that they have popping up like the chair is not there and then it's there i sometimes found myself when i really slow down nitpick i mean this is me putting my architectural cap on taking my kids cap off for just a second but i thought the amazing form of the outside of the ship Actually, this is one of the cooler spaceships of any movie, I think. I mean, it is very amorphic and there's like it's modeled off of seashells and influenced by that, but also there's something very not of this earth about it. It's not so geometric like the day the earth stood still kind of floating saucer. Uh, there's something that seems very fast and organic about it. And I kind of wish some of that smooth, uh, smooth curvilinear. Uh, nature was brought into the interior of the ship too yeah i will say it seems to fit in an art direction sort of way with the language the written language that david's eeg magically puts onto all the monitors um so as much as it's distinct from the exterior i think it it feels right to have this interior that is almost baroque in its level of of texturing that's happening there um, and they did a really amazing job with all of the backlit panels that are that are vacuum formed and manufactured and painted in a way that you can backlight them with these cool colors and it's it's amazing uh, as we're talking about this i feel like we need to give a shout out william Krieber, who's the production designer and michael novotny who is the uh art director and michael novotny has done like thousand television shows um and did interestingly terminator the sarah connor chronicles so uh brings it all back together all terminator yeah interesting yeah he did the arrival in 1996 sci-fi film oh that's yeah. and that was, that was awesome so um i think the design is is really fantastic and really appealed to me as a as a kid of like kind of that when you step inside you have got your own little playhouse 
you've got friends in there built in with all the little puppets that to meet and one of one of them he gets to take home um so i I don't and the colors in there like it just the the metal just it feels very different than you know earth and that's i thought that was really great and sometimes the crane had to be in the shot but like at the gas station scene the crane is elevating the spaceship and they just make it look like it's one of those tractor trailers parked at the gas station i mean they they disguise the things that they have to disguise really well uh when when the spaceship's floating in the hangar of nasa it's just suspended by a wire but honestly not very visible like i mean you have to enhance and zoom in a bunch of times to be able to see it because they've the angle of the shot really well because like there's folded plastic curtains around the spaceship because of that it's not so obvious and again even if you go and pause it i don't think you're going to see it's just an aircraft cable it's really amazing that they did full-size ship that the actor could actually be in and walk in and they you get so much more realism out of that as opposed to a miniature it's really impressive also it was pretty heavy if i recall wasn't it nathan i don't remember the weight exactly i do not either all i can say to our listening audience is go check out that video by vfx cool after this it is a really neat documentary they they had a lighter version and i say light quotations i think that one was an 800 pound yeah uh one with with no hatch and then, then the one that had the interior built out and stuff like that that one, like I said, was very heavy. Which, again, just underlines how impressive some of these scenes are. For example, when NASA security first finds it, uh, they find it tended by some people who've been around. The scientists walk up and some guys have been around it for a little while. And the scientists are like, oh, no, don't touch it. And the, the guys on site put a hand on it and it seems to just float almost as if it was actually like a balloon sort of just hanging yeah. over the ground and it feels light. Um, so just kudos, kudos, kudos to the team mounting it and rigging it and building it. It's great. And you can see one of those spaceships on the Disney backlot tour uh, at Disney, at Walt Disney in Florida. Really? Yep. I need to do that. That's amazing. And pretty cool. Like, they had to make the shell of this out of bent, um, curvilinear plywood panels. And then they put a coating on top of that and then painted it with a reflective metallic paint. So, again, if you're, if you like movie set pieces and stuff like that, I mean, we've uh, somehow said like this movie seems lightweight. In terms of the effects, this movie is actually an A plus. In my mind. Yeah, let me give you a little more background on William, William Krieber, who, who is the production designer, right? He did Planet of the Apes and Beneath the Planet of the Apes uh, and Escape from the Planet of the Apes as, as the art director. Um, and he also um, did uh, Street Fighter. Oh, really? <laughs> so, like... <laughs> really interesting guy but one of these things is not like the other no sorry (laughs) (laughs) um but i you've got some people on this film i think who have a a deep history in science fiction and 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 in building uh building and stuff like that so they're using all their skills they're they're kind of at the end of their careers and this is before um cgi took over the world of science fiction so we're getting our last bit of you know real building um 1986 yeah absolutely casting comment chris o'donnell was actually auditioned to play the role of david freeman 
he didn't get the role, but uh, you would know him from the Robin role of uh, Batman Forever and uh, Batman and Robin, as well as, is it NYPD or CSI? One of these police shows. Uh, isn't he also in Dude, Where's My Car? I don't know. That that would be Sean William Scott and Ashton Kutcher, but... Uh, no, no, I meant in, he's like a... Oh, is he in that one? Yeah, I think he's like the jerky guy who's like has the girlfriends. Oh, Joey Joey Kramer uh, is fine in this film. I mean, like I, I always worry about like kid actors and like if they're going to be terrible. But uh, you know, he's pretty solid. He they ask him to do a lot of stuff. I think one of his best moments is when he's asks where Starsky and Hutch is, and it's not on anymore, and he's genuinely annoyed. That's like, that was his favorite show, and now he's, he's in this world of, like, MTV that he doesn't understand. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right about, he, I think he does a lot of, like, being confused things well. The one thing that I think that he could have used a little bit of coaching on was his anger. His anger seems to be, you know how, like, people rev it up and then get, you know, there there seems to be, he goes right, right to 10. and. um you know, so there's an intensity that uh, um, th- I think that's where you're most like, ah, this is a kid actor. I'm aware of that. And the best version of this that I can say as a critique is, let me find the name of the kid who did uh, an E.T. He was awesome at this, actually. Um, Henry Wait, Thomas. The, yeah, Henry Thomas, the boy who played Elliot in E.T. Same era, by the way. He is really good going sad to confused to angry. And it seems very organic. Not every kid can do that. And I'm not gonna like put all of that on Joey Kramer for not being that, but um, that was my only acting critique. And I actually thought the parents were actually pretty good. Veronica Cartwright, you would also recognize her from Alien. Yeah, and Howard Hessman from uh, WKRP in Cincinnati. And uh, this is—is is this Sarah Jessica Parker's first movie, if I'm not mistaken, right? Uh, I know she'd done one thing before this. I think I looked that up, but I don't remember now. It's uh, it's unfortunate. I I thought that she might have a little more nostalgia for it, but when she uh, oh, she is in Footloose before this, and um, girls just want to have so she does have a few credits before this. But when asked about this, uh, she doesn't speak of it very highly. She's like, I just took it because it was a job. I mean, it's a job. You say yes to it when you're auditioning. You just want to have as much experience as possible. She couldn't tell anybody anything about it. She said, uh, nothing drew me to it. I, I, I can't say anything special about it. It was exactly a paycheck, was her words. So Wow, that's horrible. That makes me like her even less. And I don't like her already. I, I, that makes me honestly dislike her. She is like the most uh, successful actress that I don't understand why people like her. I'm not saying she's bad. I just don't think she's ever really interesting in anything. Plus, she has a horse face. I just don't like her. I just, I'm not attracted to her. I don't know, I don't know why she keeps getting cast. She's genuinely unlikable in most of her films. And even in this film, when she's trying to be nice, I still found it, I still find it. And yeah, I don't know. She just said, I literally got the part. I went and I did it. So, you know, I feel like if you're an actor at some point, you just, you know that everybody likes each one of those things, no matter what it is, probably. And, you know, you're talking to your fans, not just, not just somebody off the record when you do that to your point bear so it's just one of those things of like some some childhood uh fan of this movie sitting there going like oh how how well i just did yeah like <laughs> like how would you like it if mark hamill is just like i don't know i just i just showed up i just did it three times 
I mean, <laughs> you say that, but that's not terribly distinct from Harrison Ford's attitude. That's Harrison Ford, though. He acts too cool about everything. <laughs> you know, you, I, yeah, it's a Harrison, Ford, Harrison Ford, Harrison that's Ford a, that's says like it's nothing much, but like in, inside he's just like, I'm Han Solo. I'm Indiana Jones. <laughs> I'm not a carpenter. <laughs> which is what I was. It's like, I can just sit here and you know I'm cool. And I'm going to act like I'm not cool, which is even cooler than being cool and saying you're cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Harrison Ford's kind of grumpy too. That's just that's part of why we like him. <laughs> Double standard, maybe. I don't know. Yes. Um, okay, director. What do you think about Kleiser's job here as a director? Bears, I'm going to throw this one to you first here. Well, I would say I, I didn't know, I didn't know who he was. Although I, you know, I, I'm looking at his credits, and those are all pretty good movies. And I would have to say, if I could summarize his career, I think what he does best is get out of the way of a good i mean greece came to him it's already got a score and it's just got this amazing cast and everybody loves it nobody says oh move that movie's a really well directed blue lagoon super hot super sexy i mean nobody is like talking about the shots in that um he gets to this movie it's it's got a really cool setup and we've gushing over the production design i mean the best i mean he did put this team together so that's that's a talent right there and then he doesn't screw it up. That's that. I think that's the thing. Like he doesn't try to make this movie into anything bigger, tempting to kids' joyride. It is what it is, and he's not trying to push it. And you know, after this, he he directs Big Top Pee Wee. So um, again, he gets out of the way of the of the main act. So I, I, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid later. Hey. That's a, that's a sequel. He gets out of the way of premise of that of that film and the cast that already had. Not that that's a great movie, but it, I mean, it's a product, right? And, and I think as a director, you can either be really hands-on and really like morph it into being, you know, pounded into submission to say something, which is, I think is like a Christopher Nolan sort of, you know, but you can also just set it up and get out of the way and let it, let it do its thing and not try to be, you know, too heavy handed with it. I think the oversight that he had to do without a huge budget, by the way, is really impressive. And I, you know, the director sometimes gets a lot of cre- uh, credit for things they shouldn't or things that they should. And to your point, Bears, I think there might have been some script moments or some screenwriting moments that could have been improved. And Nathan is just making <laughs> corrections left and right. But I think he elevated this to a pretty high level, actually, to the point where we want to talk about this to this day. So, And also, originally, this was an independent. This, was a main, this main company was um, a production sales organization that put up two-thirds of the budget, and the rest came from Viking Film, a Norwegian company. Getting made is difficult. They tried to sell this to Disney. They didn't want it. They didn't pick it up. And oddly enough, those that that production company went under and Disney ended up acquiring the movie. And they didn't really think that they had a hit. They didn't market it real heavily in North America. And um, so its distribution was, mm, I guess, bigger than it would have been had it been an independent, but it wasn't exactly backed with full support by Disney either. And so to know that this movie's funding and its budget and everything was what it was, I can only imagine what Randall Kleiser would have been able to do with full support had they been picked up from Disney from the beginning and been nurtured. Uh, now, would he would he have gotten yeah. to be the director? I don't know. He did a really good job, given that he he is actually kind of limited with what he can do with this. So, and let's give a, a shout out to to PSO, the original production company, because around the same time uh, as Flight Navigator, they also did Short Circuit, another kids oh, love robot movie. movie, right? 
Um, yeah, watch it again. It does. I know not it's got a white actor playing an Indian actor, but uh, if you can get around, it's really disturbing. yeah. If you can get around, the, they also if you can did, get around that. Then the Johnny Five is just a great robot. I could not get around it. I rewatched that movie last year, and it there's also this creepy thing of Johnny Five sexualizing um ali sheedy in that film it's well who wouldn't it's ali sheedy she's great but he's a robot it's ali sheedy anyway (laughs) (laughs) this company also did the never-ending story back in 84 they did the adventures of buckaroo bonsai which we covered on this podcast with tessa yes they did uh cujo uh, in 83 and going all the way back in uh 81 they did an american werewolf in london and das boot oh american werewolf in london is an effects powerhouse movie that's a pretty movie so this is a pretty solid company um you know but i i think you're you're right they're doing things on a lower budget and and getting stuff done and they managed to put something together that at a lower budget ended up being released by disney and no one questioned that it was a disney film i mean i thought it was a dis i thought it completely was a disney film i think disney wouldn't have probably gone as dark as they did you know what i mean like that that x-files beginning that we talked about where you go home and your parents aren't there I think that's probably Disney would have lessened that to some degree. Yeah, I would. That was the thing that impressed me about just how far it went there. Um, it, it, it gets uncomfortable. Um, they took him to the police station. And they said he's dead. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, I like that part of the movie, but I just can't imagine Disney doing that. Funny little uh, movie uh, trivia bit when the family's driving in, the, in 1978 they they hear you're the one that I want. On the radio. And that's Randall Kleiser's Grease uh, little self-promotion there. I like that. Now, Nathan, let's talk about music for a minute. This is not as orchestral as your normal run goes, but what do you think about the mu- the music that we have here? I mean, it's ultra 80s. How does it make you feel? It makes me feel 80s. It's, this, is, this is the music. This is the kind of music that is... It underscores how much this movie is really about building to the just the excitement of soaring through the air kind of kind of thing where it's it's there's not a lot of memorable music in this in the sense you know building up there's these dramatic scenes that are heartfelt and touching but kind of sad and going into things but it's not really making it doesn't have too much of an identity on its own for me anyway yeah some some people some people have a lot of nostalgia for this one Alan, Alan Silvestri did the Back to the Future soundtrack as well. So, I mean, it's of its time. And if you've listened to me on this podcast, I am not kind to 80s music most of the time. So I'm, I, I can't say it's for me. It, is, it, it has a special place in its heart for many people. And a lot of people like that. It's all electronic from the time. And I do have to admit, it hits the energy of the movie. That's part of what takes you back time for me. So it might not be what I want to listen to on my iPod. Um, it's not it's not out of character. Uh, I will say that the music he is in Ralph when he hides in the box robot and is driven around the the uh, base. That music is is some of the worst music I have. And I, I found it and it and it and it underscored how unexciting that scene was as he's sitting in a box that's just driving around and there's no danger. And the music is like, but once he got into the ship, the music's fine. Like it, it, it works for me. It, it was just when it was the only thing. You mean the Beach Boys? Now this is what I call music. Yeah, that was pretty funny. No, I meant that. I meant the score. Although I want to know who that band was that he saw on MTV. Oh, I actually should have looked that up. I don't. Oh, That's yeah. A good question. I know they threw a turkey, a perfectly good turkey on the floor, though. <laughs> <laughs> they had some nicely distorted legs going on. I love that's the thing he can't stand from the 80s. The thing he can't stand from the 80s is MTV, which is like that was like my whole childhood. 
I feel like the reference to Twisted Sister that um, Carolyn gives him and the um, and the and, and NASA, he never looks into it in the ship. I feel like he should have uh, said like, "Play Twisted Sister." While he's also breaking out of the base, and they play "We're Not Gonna Take It" in rebellion, as they like, uh, like as he busts oh. out, and he's like, "Yeah, this is pretty good." See, you're a screenwriter too. That's great. That would have been perfect. Or he could have just been going out to to more grease music. Grease lightning, go grease lightning. <laughs> All right, superlatives time. It's my favorite time. What do you guys say? Let's do it. Bears MVP. Uh, MVP of the movie is definitely Paul Rubens. He brings the energy to the film. He's the, he's the secret hidden gem, and uh, and he's just fun. I mean, I, he, I forget how much fun Pee Wee Herman was. <laughs> All right, Nathan MVP. If it's not Paul Rubens, it's, it's got to be Joey Kramer. Russell, you were a little down on some of his more emotional acting earlier, but I felt like I was really impressed that as David Scott Freeman, he was able to bring out a lot of the subtlety in a lot of scenes. And it was really funny later to see, like, they're trying to put this kid through, okay, you're experiencing 10 Gs, you're, like, straining. And uh, he managed to act it out in a way that was really fun to watch. I, I, think he, I think he carries a lot of this movie, as he has to. Well, I think he does fun really well. I think he does scared really well. I think he does sad well, which I'm. you notice I'm checking a lot of good boxes that a lot of kid actors could botch all of these things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the kid in The Phantom Menace couldn't do any of those. I just think angry it gets it is a little deficient. Also, also getting knocked out. Getting knocked out, he does not do very well. Yes. So, uh, no, I don't want to knock him too hard. You've, I've seen way worse child actors than this. I mean, he's had a tough life. Lay, lay off, Joey. Yes, oh yeah, he... He robbed a bank. He sold some drugs. I'm not recasting him. I'll say that. Okay. So like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not coming after him. So, uh, although Henry Thomas would be good, but, uh, anyway, MVP for me is going to be the effects team to make the starship gushed about them. And that's my, that's my MVP. Um, best supporting actor bears. Uh, I got to give this one to Matt Adler who plays the older, the older brother, the once younger brother, but older brother now, Jeff in the, in the, uh, in the now ditto in the 1986. Ditto. Mark me down for that as well. Good call. Nathan, what about you? I might join you on those three things on, on, on that. I was going to say Paul Rubens as the voice of Max, but uh, but yeah, definitely. Hidden gem. Uh, I'm going to say the, the puppetry, which, uh, you know, was good enough that I had to look up to see if it was Jim Henson uh, team who did it, especially the, um, the little creature, which is called a Puckmarin. Um, the little like bat-like creature that he takes home. Uh, so the I think the puppetry is is really solid for again low budget and I love the big I love the big eye. Oh God, so great! Yeah, I, there's a bunch of little things in there. I love to spend more time with them. Yeah, uh, Nathan, what about you? For my hidden gem, I'm going to call out. There's an extra, and I hope this line was actually written into the movie. But as the ship is starting to that David has gone into the ship and he is looking out the window at all the NASA security guys who are out there. And as he steps out, one of them goes, holy shit, it's an alien. And it's just so... (laughs) Another thing that wouldn't have happened had Disney made the whole movie, but yeah. And it was just so out of place in this kid-friendly movie. (laughs) You're right. Oh my God. (sighs) That's a good one. My hidden gem is going to be, and I knew it right when I got to him because it was just like, this guy's amazing. The gas station attendant who's dumbstruck by the airplane with his <laughs> mouth agape the whole time. Rusty yes. pa- 
Al, big yeah, Al. Yeah, Rusty Pouch is his name, and uh, he's, <laughs> he, he cracked me up, man. Like, to not laugh, to just stand there, like, I couldn't think of a better person to do that. He was awesome. And, like, this other dad's just, like, talking to him. It's just like, that's a really nice display you got there. I can see that bringing people in. <laughs> just, I mean, that, that scene went at that harder than I thought they would have, and uh, I had a lot of fun with that recast i just i just looked it up rusty pouch's main job is he works in the camera and electrical department he has 26 credits on oh, different man. shows uh as a rigging gaffer so maybe he worked on the film too uh, that that's awesome uh also that's an interesting name rusty pouch yeah it sounds all it does up. um recast if you had to recast somebody bears and put somebody in their place who's it gonna be uh, it's definitely gonna be sarah jessica parker i can't stand her and um i think almost anybody on earth would have been better but I'll, let me just go with jennifer Connolly, coming f- fresh off uh, labyrinth ah that would have been nice that would have been is she old enough at this point she would have been 18 i guess yeah yeah that, that. Car- carolyn adams she, they, she's an intern that's what they refer to her as later in the in the film when they which is kind of odd that she's an intern and her job is food to everybody well more on that more, more on that recast in a minute nathan what about you i also want to recast jennifer bradley's kara rogers i want someone who is of an age where her being funny and flirty with david that is not awkward and i also want more star trek crossover references to happen here so i want to bring in majel barrett actually of star trek fame to come in here and be not exactly the Nurse Chapel character, but pretty much exactly the Nurse Chapel character. And you're going for Carolyn McAdams, the, the character that Sarah Jessica Parker's playing? Yeah, again, you you said Jennifer Bradley. I don't think you should recast Jennifer Bradley. She has one Oh, line. Oh my Come gosh. On, she was uh, great. Re- I, I'm reading off the wrong person. Yes. I would like to recast Sarah Jessica Parker as Major Barrett. <laughs> Or Carrie Rogers. I mean, come on. She, she gets I don't one think this has ever happened, but I'm coming after the, the same room. person as well as Sarah Jessica Parker. And because I, I, well, I considered Jennifer Connelly, I thought she might be a tad young. Also, if you've listened to me on this podcast, I stick Jennifer Connelly in a lot of movies. So I was, I was going to not be one note on this one. So I do like that pick because she came up in my mind. Alyssa Milano is about, uh, is a, she's like one year older than Sarah Jessica Parker. And I think she could pull off the purple hair best shot of the movie Bears. So it's a two shot for me, and it, and it and it's early in the film when he is returned in time. Uh, you know, he's in 1986. He gets caught. He gets brought to the police station, and there's this great shot, which totally from his perspective, looking up, police looking down at him, and you just see how powerless he is. And then we see that kind of similar shot at the end of the film when um, he comes back, and he is he's shot from that he's above and looking down on everybody and it's his perspective. So you just see how the, the moment has changed him and it's a very simple camera trick, but um, it just really put me in, in his mind, which I, I felt worked really well because he's our, he's our character. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think there's, there's some good camera work in this movie. I feel like it flexes it in the first part of the movie more so than the last part of the movie. Obviously um, it's less emotional then, and it's a little more joyride and the effects taking more stage front in the last third of the movie but um first third of the movie or sorry the first part of the movie i think that they he does a good job of making you feel uneasy there are an enormous number of just awesome vfx shots that i could call out in this movie but there's one shot that sticks with me from one of the early fake outs in the movie 
of the water tower emerging through the woods that I just <laughs> couldn't stop thinking about because my brain immediately started going, but water towers, they're actually leftovers from the War of the Worlds. In fact, they're just sitting there waiting. We thought we defeated them, but their masters are going to come for them. <laughs> the robots are going to attack again. <laughs> You know, I think that's a that's a Disney version of a jump scare, where you think that it's one thing and that and then it's not. So I I, I agree. I, I I thought that was kind of playful with the audience's expectation. Yeah, you know, you're watching a science fiction film. You keep expecting there to be a, a, a spaceship, and there keeps not. Being. I wouldn't want that to keep being done over and over and over again, like Friday the Thirteenth does with its jump scares. But uh, you know, I I think that one here in this time was. Um, my best shot is going to be, uh, David looks up the steps of the starship head on and the portal is open. It's kind of that, like, as a kid, you're like, am I brave enough to just go in on there? Like, you know, I'm also fleeing where I'm coming from. It's a suspenseful moment. And the backlighting of all of those plastic curtains, that's really effective. Uh, I, it's, it's a mysterious and exciting moment. And to me, it, it should be the cover of the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, best scene. I'm tempted to say that the scene that we've already talked about with uh, with Jeff, um, but since we've already talked about it, I'm gonna I'm gonna put that to the side and just go with the one that I remember. Uh, the one shot I sort of remembered for, of this movie from my childhood, which was the ship uh, turning and becoming more aerodynamic and just you know flying away and the the speed at which it goes. So that's a that's a graphic shot, but that ship just looks so amazing and. Uh, that scene, the first, the flying scene, you know, the first flight going up 20 miles, going 20 miles across, diving into the water. I mean, that is the joyride. And, and that, you, that shows that you don't really need Paul Rubens because he's very, I mean, just does compliance during that. So, um, but it still works. Uh, and I just remember being in my seat at the movie theater, just like grabbing the arms, being like, yeah, definitely. That's a great choice. And uh, Nathan, what about you? My favorite scene in this movie has to be leading up to the shot that you called out, Russell, as after being sort of handed around and given to various people throughout the film, David finally takes a little bit of authority into his own hand and he escapes, makes his run through Ralph the Robot, which I actually found kind of funny and and, and cutesy. It's a ditzy robot, but I appreciated it. And... He's taking he's taking his life in his own hands, and he manages to make it to the ship and get in, and it's it's cool. Like the the freeing part for me is not really like the flying is great and exhilarating in its own way, but through my eyes right now, the the cool part is that he gets himself there. Okay, and that's a, that is a cool sequence of how he. My best scene's gonna come in the early early part when David leaves the woods seemingly for minutes and then comes to his house and finds that it's decorated differently. There's different people who live there. He's runs upstairs and his room's not his room. Like I said, it's, it's X-Files kind of feeling stuff. It's legit, legit scary. Like, I mean, to feeling of being that age and to be separated from your parents and your home, everything that you know is safe is gone. And seemingly with no explanation, that was like, I was hooked. I was like, Oh, where's this movie going? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's my that's my favorite scene. Uh, 
best wardrobe and makeup moment. Okay. <laughs> oh, you just reminded me of, of my favorite. I hadn't, I wasn't thinking about it, but that scene when David returns to the house for the first time and he tries to go in his room and there's this like old guy <laughs> in this silk robe and he stands up. He's like, well, hello. And he's just like sitting in there like reading in an armchair. It's like the most awkward thing. Like there was nothing else in the room except an armchair. And he's in this like, I don't know, like kimono <laughs> gown thing. I mean, that, that was so out of control and strange. David Scott Freeman, you may be unlucky in so many things, but it could have been so much worse when you walked into that room. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, Nathan, what about you? Best wardrobe makeup moment? David Scott Freeman meets his now older brother in the hospital and his older brother walks in and is just wearing his sleeves rolled up in this really weird diagonal way did this ever actually happen in the 80s that people had like colored in like this funky diagonal sleeve thing it's it's great his his brother is this put together scientist guy i'll tell you this much as a kid i got handed more long sleeve shirts than I ever would want to. And every picture that I, you know, not every picture, but a lot of my pictures have me like crammed, like, like taking the sleeves and jamming them up, up high on my, uh, <laughs> like, like as if I were wanting a t-shirt. I, I had a, I had a bad relationship with sleeves in the eighties. Sorry. <laughs> um, so, uh, my best wardrobe makeup moment, it's going to be Sarah Jessica Parker's purple hair. And I say, go more purple. Add some light blue in there if you want to. Go all the way. Let's see, she couldn't sell that. That's another part of why she needed to be replaced. She couldn't sell the purple hair. It looked like an afterthought. It's probably a clip-in. Like, I'm probably she would speak to that with the same degree of unenthusiasm. Yeah, it's just a hairpiece. I just wore it because they told me to wear it, and I went in, and they just paid me, so I did it. So. <laughs> <laughs> How could you not want to replace an actress like that? <laughs> Jennifer Connelly would be like, oh, I really thought forever about what Carolyn McAdams was and why she wanted this internship and what her future dreams. I mean, she would have done a whole like character analysis. Well, I mean, she's an Oscar winning actress versus Sarah Jessica Parker. All right. Uh, change one thing and only one thing. Well, this has been the main thing that I have been thinking about since I watched this movie is you need to bring back Jennifer Bradley at the end of the film. You have this like payoff. You need to pay that off. Like the, she, he needs, he, he had his first crush. He was spying on her with a telescope, and now he's back. He's a man of the world. You know, where is he going to go first? I think he, he, the last scene of this movie has to be him knocking on the, on the door and showing her, like, this cute little bat creature that he's got. He's, now he's got, like, a ringer to, like, get in her heart. Oh, my gosh. What if he goes back with the ship and picks her up and does a flying scene with her? I'm going to go for a ride. I mean, yeah. that, that should have been a consideration in the movie. For sure. I just think it's strange that we don't even revisit Yeah, they set it up. They set it up. This dad gives him the talk, etc. I mean, he doesn't get to follow through with that. Also, there's no more dogs with Frisbees later. That is sad. No, there is, actually. The dog. They call it back. In the time, in in 1986, we do see uh, Jeff throw the Frisbee and Bruiser catch it. So... Not at the end of the movie, but but in that time period when they're when they're uh, when it's years later. That opening was, I mean, long. Yeah, it I was, was wonderful. Say, they, were, they were they were in Fort Lauderdale, and that was happening in Fort Lauderdale, so they went with it. But I I feel like that was one of my directorial points where I'm just like, that's a strange way to open up your movie. You really committed to this dog frisbee thing. I don't care. Dogs in slow motion catching frisbees or for most of them missing frisbees and looking vaguely disappointed as they twist back around to land was 
one of the cutest opening sequences I think I've ever seen. Nathan, <laughs> Nathan's a, a dog lover, so Nathan has no problem with this. So give, I actually, give, I wrote that down in my notes. It's like, well, Nathan likes this movie so far. Give so. me more dog frisbees. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, that's not my change one thing, though. Uh, my change one thing is, and Nathan got very close to touching on it. It's just, I think this needs, I think this demands a sequel. I want this movie to end with him landing and meeting Jennifer Beale, and the two of them go on a time-traveling adventure to who knows where next. And uh, I, I think that there's more money to be made from this in the Disney nurturing way, and I think with more budget, more ambitions, they could travel to different places in the galaxy, different times. It's all on the, it's all right there, and we can travel with fun PB Herman robot. I think that there's more, there's more gold to be mined here than we got. I know how this gets a sequel. He goes back. He goes to to try to find Jennifer and finds out that he, that she's been taken by another ship, and he has to go off planet to find her. What if there's a doctor who's a friend, like an older gentleman who's a friend? Of David, and then he gets back in time. And he says, "You've got to come quick to the spaceship." And he's like, "Why?" Because he's like, "Is something wrong with us?" He's like, "It's not you. It's your children." <laughs> <laughs> um, best quote: Bears. Uh, it's gonna be uh, who'd you see uh, the concert? Who'd you see? Uh, Twisted Sister. Never heard of her. It's a him. Actually, it's a them. I thought it was funny, especially With now the they and them we are <laughs> well when we have people's pronouns as they and them and. It has a second, it has a double meaning now, but, you know, I, I was a big fan of Twisted Sister when I was a kid, so. All right, yeah, that, that is funny. That, that is a, it's taken on a new meaning, for sure. Uh, Nathan, what about you? Best quote. This isn't my favorite quote, but I want to bring it up because, and in fact, I don't even like this quote, but I want to bring this up because I'm afraid that this is, a, this is how this movie came to be, because I'm afraid that this movie exists to build entirely to the punchline of the pun see you later navigator at the end i am afraid that somebody said that line and was like oh my gosh that's a kid's movie and that's exactly how this happened the, the one quote i would change <laughs> would be the one moment that i was like oh that doesn't that you wouldn't do that now is he does no way jose which is like <laughs> totally culturally inappropriate you would never have that line now and the other thing he i was like uh <laughs> max sticks his head out at, to big al and he's like hey too many hey, blimpo too many twinkies and i'm like wow way to fat shame big al his name is big al what do you want that guy's that guy's that guy's so funny. He's great. That was my that's my pick as well. It's uh it's just so beautifully delivered. See you later, navigator. I love that. Yeah, I, I applauded. Bear, tell us tell the audience at home one more time where we can see all of your amazing films at festivals and your efforts. Which there are many. Yeah. Otherworldsfilmfest.com is the science fiction film festival. It's the first week of December in, in Austin. And uh, we will have a virtual element again this year. And uh, Aglif, uh, A-G-L-I-F-F dot org, is the queer festival that uh, is in August. So it has just happened. Time travel to the... All right. And this is the big moment of the show. On a five-star scale with half-star intervals, Bears, what do you give Fly to the Navigator from 1986? I gotta give it a four. I, I mean, I was really surprised. It really held up. I think that there, we've, we've pointed out a number of things that could have been done a little bit better or could have been you know increased and so that's why i can't go any higher than four but four is pretty solid for a movie made at a low budget in 1986 uh in comparison to short circuit which why we give about a two at this point in time so 
Oh, you're hard. You're hard on Johnny Five. Ugh. I was so disappointed when I rewatched that movie. Go do Short Circuit 2. Let me know how that goes for you. <laughs> to be even worse. That stars Mr. Brownface. Yeah, I know. I know. That's why I said you're going to have a harder time. Yeah, Steve Gutenberg doesn't even come back if I recall, right? <laughs> yeah. I thought, yeah. Nathan, uh, what, is, what is this movie on a five-star scale for you? Uh, so I'm harsh on this one. There's a part of me that wants to give it a two and a half because I feel like that was about my enjoyment level of it. But I'm going to give it a three because I recognize what audience this is made for. That's where I stand. Yeah, that's a reasonable thing to do. I I have fun with this, and I'm going to rate it a three. My enjoyment level is probably a little higher than, than what it says there, and the effects are amazing. We have chipped away at it enough times, and we know that it is very much for kids, and that, that targeted, limited audience is probably what keeps it from being a greater thing you're actually exhibiting to some degree of like the farther you get away from this i'm not sure how timeless it is which is why i was saying earlier this movie demands to be remade i think we could have a lot of fun with this and expand it you know i mean if you make enough money with it you better be prepared to go make another sequel with it and i think that this movie is ready to do the job call poop call paul rubens up make him the voice of the ship again because i think we could uh i think we could definitely go have a fun adventure with him Nathan, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? I do, Russell. All right, let's get some martial arts action going on here. We got option number one, The Emperor and the Assassin from 1998. In a pre-unified China, the kingdom of Qin sends his concubine to a rival kingdom to produce an assassin for a political plot. But as the king's cruelty mounts, she finds her loyalty faltering. Option two, Fearless from 2006, a biography of a Chinese martial arts master the founder of the spiritual guru of the Gen Wu Federation. Option three, Hero from 2002. A defender officer nameless was summoned by the King of Chen regarding the success of terminating three warriors. Well, Russell, we're going to have to go with option three, Hero from 2002. I need a hero. Bears, thank you so much for coming on. We had fun once again. Yeah, thank you for having me back. Thank you, all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you, so subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us at, at movie underscore retro on Twitter. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to support the Patreon page for our show at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. Any contributions you make will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening, be good to each other, and watch more movies. Nathan? I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer.